Section 27 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 14. The Capetians to the Time of the Crusades. Part 2. The most complete amongst the chroniclers of the time, Orderic Vital, says, touching this marriage at Angers of Bertrade's two husbands, this clever woman had, by her skilful management, so perfectly reconciled these two rivals, that she made them a splendid feast, got them both to sit at the same table, had their beds prepared, the ensuing night, in the same chamber, and ministered to them according to their pleasure. The most judicious of the historians and statesmen of the twelfth century, the Abbey Sugar, that faithful minister of Louis the Fat, who cannot be suspected of favouring Bertrade, expresses himself about her in these terms. This sprightly and rarely accomplished woman, well versed in the art, familiar to her sex, of holding captive the husbands they have outraged, had acquired such an empire over her first husband, the Count of Anjou, in spite of the affront she had put upon him by deserting him, that he treated her with homage as his sovereign, often sat upon a stool at her feet, and obeyed her wishes by a sort of enchantment. These details are textually given as the best representation of the place occupied, in the history of that time, by the morals and private life of the kings. It would not be right, however, to draw therefrom conclusions as to the abasement of Capetian royalty in the eleventh century, with too great severity. There are irregularities and scandals which the great qualities and the personal glory of princes may cause to be not only excused but even forgotten, though certainly the three Capetians who immediately succeeded the founder of the dynasty offered their people no such compensation. But it must not be supposed that they had fallen into the flight of the sluggard Merovingians, or the last Carlovingians, wandering almost without a refuge. A profound change had come over society and royalty in France. In spite of their political mediocrity and their indolent licentiousness, Robert, Henry I, and Philip I were not, in the eleventh century, insignificant personages, without authority or practical influence, whom their contemporaries could leave out of the account. They were great lords, proprietors of vast domains wherein they exercised over the population an almost absolute power. They had, it is true, about them, rivals, large proprietors, and almost absolute sovereigns, like themselves, sometimes stronger even, materially, than themselves, and more energetic or more intellectually able, whose superiors, however, they remained on two grounds, as suzerains and as kings. Their court was always the most honoured, and their alliance very much sought after. They occupied the first rank in feudal society, and a rank unique in the body politic, such as it was, slowly becoming, in the midst of reminiscences and traditions of the Jewish monarchy, of barbaric kingship, and of the Roman Empire for a while resuscitated by Charlemagne. French kingship in the eleventh century was sole power invested with a triple character, Germanic, Roman, and religious. Its possessors were at the same time the chieftains of the conquerors of the soil, the successors of the Roman emperors and of Charlemagne, and the laic delegates and representatives of the god of the Christians. Whatever were their weaknesses and their personal shortcomings, they were not the mere tutelaries of a power in decay, and the kingly post was strong and full of blossoms, as events were not slow to demonstrate. And as with the kingship, so with the community of France in the eleventh century. In spite of its dislocation into petty, incoherent, and turbulent associations, it was by no means in decay. Irregularities of ambition, 
hatreds and quarrels amongst neighbours and relatives, outrages on the part of princes and peoples were incessantly renewed, but energy of character, activity of mind, indomitable will and zeal for the liberty of the individual were not wanting, and they exhibited themselves passionately and at any risk, at one time by brutal and cynical outbursts, which were followed occasionally by ferment repentance and expiation, at another by acts of courageous wisdom and disinterested piety. At the commencement of the eleventh century, William the Third, Count of Portier and Duke of Aquitaine, was one of the most honoured and most potent princes of his time. All the sovereigns of Europe sent embassies to him as their peer. He every year made, by way of devotion, a trip to Rome, and was received there with the same honours as the emperor. He was fond of literature, and gave up to reading the early hours of the night, and scholars called him another Macenus. Unaffected by these worldly successes, he intermingled with so much toil and so many miscalculations. He refused the crown of Italy, when it was offered to him at the death of the Emperor Henry the Second, and he finished, like Charles V, some centuries later, by going and seeking in a monastery isolation from the world and repose. But in the same domains, and at the end of the same century, his grandson, William the Seventh was the most vagabondish, dissolute, and violent of princes, and his morals were so scandalous that the Bishop of Portier, after having warned him to no purpose, considered himself forced to excommunicate him. The Duke suddenly burst into the church, made his way through the congregation sword in hand, and seized the prelate by the hair, saying, "'Thou shalt give me absolution, or die.' The Bishop demanded a moment for reflection, profited by it to pronounce the form of excommunication, and forthwith, bowing his head before the duke, said, "'And now strike!' "'I love thee not well enough to send thee to paradise,' answered the duke, and he confined himself to depriving him of his see. For fury the duke of Aquitaine sometimes substituted insolent mockery. Another bishop, of Angoulême, who was quite bald, likewise exhorted him to mend his ways. "'I will mend,' quoth the duke, "'when thou shalt comb back thy hair to thy pate.' Another great lord of the same century, Fulke the Black, Count of Anjou, at the close of an able and glorious lifetime, had resigned to his son Geoffrey Martel the administration of his countship. The son, as haughty and harsh towards his father as towards his subjects, took up arms against him, and bade him lay aside the outward signs, which he still maintained, of power. The old man in his wrath recovered the vigour and ability of his youth, and strove so energetically and successfully against his son, that he reduced him to such subjugation as to make him do several miles crawling on the ground, says the chronicle, with a saddle on his back, and to come and prostrate himself at his feet. When Fulke had his son thus humbled before him, he spurned him with his foot, repeating over and over again nothing but, Thou art beaten, thou art beaten. I beaten, said Geoffrey, but by thee only, because thou art my father. To any other I am invincible. The anger of the old man vanished at once. He now thought only how he might console his son for the affront put upon him, and he gave him back his power, exhorting him only to conduct himself with more moderation and gentleness towards his subjects. All was inconsistency in contrast with these robust, rough, hasty souls. They cared little for belying themselves when they had satisfied the passion of the moment. The relations existing between the two great powers of the period, the laic lords and the monks, were not less bitter or less unstable than amongst the laics themselves, and when artifice, as often happened, was employed, it was by no means to the exclusion of violence. About the middle of the twelfth century, the Abbey of Tournus, in Burgundy, had at Luhans a little port where it collected salt tax, whereof it every year distributed the receipts to the poor during the first week in Lent. 
Girard, Count of Macon, established a like toll a little distance off. The monks of Tournus complained, but he took no notice. A long while afterwards he came to Tournus with a splendid following, and entered the church of St. Philibert. He had stopped all alone before the altar to say his prayers, when a monk, cross in hand, issued suddenly from behind the altar, and placing himself before the Count, "'How hast thou the audacity,' he said, "'to enter my monastery in mine house, thou that dost not hesitate to rob me of my dues?' And taking Girard by the hair, he threw him on the ground and belaboured him heavily. The Count, stupefied and contrite, acknowledged his injustice, took off the toll that he had wrongfully put on, and not content with this reparation, sent to the church of Tournus a rich carpet of golden and silken tissue. In the middle of the eleventh century, Adamer II, Viscount of Limoges, had in his city a quarrel of quite a different sort with the monks of the Abbey of St. Martial. The Abbey had fallen into great looseness of discipline and morals, and the Viscount had at heart its reformation. To this end he entered into concert, at a distance, with Hugh, abbot of Cluny, at that time the most celebrated and the most respected of the monasteries. The abbot of St. Marshall died. Adamar sent for some monks from Cluny to come to Limoges, lodged them secretly near his palace, repaired to the abbey of St. Marshall after having had the chapter convoked, and called upon the monks to proceed at once to the election of a new abbot. A lively discussion upon this point arose between the viscount and the monks. "'We are not ignorant,' said one of them to him, "'that you have sent for brethren from Cluny, in order to drive us out and put them in our places, but you will not succeed. The Viscount was furious, seized by the sleeve the monk who was inveighing, and dragged him by force out of the monastery. His fellows were frightened and took to flight, and Adamar immediately had the monks from Cluny sent for, and put them in possession of the abbey. It was a ruffianly proceeding, but the reform was popular in Limoges and was effected. These trifling matters are faithful samples of the dominant and fundamental characteristic of French society during the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth centuries, the true epoch of the Middle Ages. It was chaos, and fermentation within the chaos, the slow and rough, but powerful and productive fermentation of unruly life. In ideas, events, and persons there was a blending of the strongest contrasts. Manners were rude and even savage, yet souls were filled with lofty and tender aspirations. The authority of religious creeds at one time was on the point of extinction, yet at another shone forth gloriously in opposition to the arrogance and brutality of mundane passions. Ignorance was profound, and yet here and there, in the very heart of the mental darkness, gleamed bright centres of movement and intellectual labour. It was the period when Abelard, anticipating freedom of thought and of instruction, drew together upon Mount St. Genevieve thousands of hearers, anxious to follow him in the study of the great problems of nature, and of the destiny of men and the world. And far away from this throng, in the solitude of the Abbey of B, St. Anselm was offering to his monks a Christian and philosophical demonstration of the existence of God, faith-seeking understanding, fides quarens intellectuen, as he himself used to say. It was the period, too, when, distressed at the licentiousness which was spreading throughout the church, as well as lay society, two illustrious monks, St. Bernard and St. Norbert, not only went preaching everywhere, reformation of morals, but laboured at and succeeded in establishing for monastic life a system of strict discipline and severe austerity. Lastly, it was the period when, in the laic world, was created and developed the most splendid fact of the Middle Ages, knighthood, that noble soaring of imaginations and souls towards the ideal of Christian virtue and soldierly honour. It is impossible to trace in detail the origin and history of that grand fact, 
which was so prominent in the days to which it belonged, and which is so prominent still in the memories of men. But a clear notion ought to be obtained of its moral character and its practical worth. To this end a few pages shall be borrowed from Guizot's History of the Civilization in France. Let us first look on the admission of a knight, such as took place in the twelfth century. We will afterwards see what rules of conduct were imposed on him, not only according to the oaths which he had to take on becoming a knight, but according to the idea formed of knighthood by the poets of the day, those interpreters not only of actual life, but of men's sentiments also. We shall then understand without difficulty what influence must have been exercised in the souls and lives of men, by such sentiments and such rules, however great may have been the discrepancy between the knightly ideal and the general actions and passions of contemporaries. The young man, the esquire who aspired to the title of knight, was first stripped of his clothes and placed in a bath, which was symbolical of purification. On leaving the bath he was clothed in a white tunic, which was symbolical of purity, and a red robe, which was symbolical of the blood he was bound to shed in the service of the faith, and a black sagum or close-fitting coat, which was symbolical of the death which awaited him, as well as all men. Thus purified and clothed, the candidate observed for four-and-twenty hours a strict fast. When evening came, he entered church, and there passed the night in prayer, sometimes alone, sometimes with a priest and sponsors who prayed with him. Next day his first act was confession. After confession the priest gave him the communion. After the communion he attended a mass of the Holy Spirit, and generally a sermon touching on the duties of knights and of the new life he was about to enter on. The sermon over, the candidate advanced to the altar with the knight's sword hanging from his neck. This the priest took off, blessed, and replaced upon his neck. The candidate then went and knelt before the Lord who was to arm him knight. To what purpose, the Lord asked him, do you desire to enter the order? If to be rich, to take your ease and to be held in honor without doing honor to knighthood, you are unworthy of it, and would be, to the order of knighthood you received, what the simoniacal clerk is to the prelacy. On the young man's reply, promising to acquit himself well of the duties of knight, the Lord granted his request. Then drew near knights and sometimes ladies to reclothe the candidate in all his new array, and they put on him the spurs, the hauberk or coat of mail, the cuirass, the armlets and gauntlets, and the sword. He was what was then called a dubbed, that is, adopted, according to Ducange. The Lord rose up, went to him, and gave him the accolade or accolade, three blows with the flat of the sword on the shoulder or nape of the neck, and sometimes a slap with the palm of the hand on the cheek, saying, In the name of God, St. Michael and St. George, I make thee knight. And he sometimes added, Be valiant, bold, and loyal. The young man, having been thus armed knight, had his helmet brought to him. A horse was led up for him, he leaped on its back, generally without the help of the stirrups, and caracoled about, brandishing his lance and making his sword flash. Finally he went out of church and caracoled about in the open, at the foot of the castle, in the presence of the people eager to have their share in the spectacle. Such was what may be called the outward and material part in the admission of knights. It shows a persistent anxiety to associate religion with all the phases of so personal an affair. The sacraments, the most august feature of Christianity, are mixed up with it, and many of the ceremonies are, as far as possible, assimilated to the administration of the sacraments. Let us continue our examination. Let us penetrate to the very heart of knighthood, its moral character, its ideas, the sentiments which it was the object to impress upon the knight. Here again the influence of religion will be quite evident. 
The knight had to swear to twenty-six articles. These articles, however, did not make one single formula, drawn up at one and the same time and altogether. They are a collection of oaths required of knights at different epochs, and in more or less complete fashion from the eleventh to the fourteenth century. The candidate swore, one, to fear, reverence, and serve God religiously, to fight for the faith with all their might, and to die a thousand deaths rather than ever renounce Christianity. Two, to serve their sovereign prince faithfully, and to fight for him and fatherland right valiantly. Three, to uphold the rights of the weaker, such as widows, orphans, and damsels, in fair quarrel, exposing themselves on that account according as need might be, provided it were not against their own honour or against their king or lawful prince. Four, that they would not injure any one maliciously, or take what was another's, but would rather do battle with those who did so. Five, that greed, pay, gain, or profit should never constrain them to do any deed, but only glory and virtue. Six, that they would fight for the good and advantage of the common weal. Seven, that they would be bound by and obey the orders of their generals and captains who had a right to command them. Eight, that they would guard the honour, rank, and order of their comrades, and that they would neither by arrogance nor by force commit any trespass against any one of them. Nine, that they would never fight in companies against one, and that they would eschew all tricks and artifices. Ten, that they would wear but one sword, unless they had to fight against two or more. Eleven, that in tourney, or other sport of contest, they would never use the point of their swords. 12. That being taken prisoner in a tourney, they would be bound, on their faith and honour, to perform in every point the conditions of capture, besides being bound to give up to the victors their arms and horses, if it seemed good to take them, and being disabled from fighting in war or elsewhere without their leave. 13. That they would keep faith invaluably with all the world, and especially with their comrades, upholding their honour and advantage, wholly, in their absence. 14. That they would love and honour one another, and aid and succour one another whenever occasion offered. 15. That having made vow or promise to go on any quest or novel adventure, they would never put off their arms, save for the night's rest. 16. That in pursuit of their quest or adventure they would not shun bad and perilous passes, nor turn aside from the straight road for fear of encountering powerful knights or monsters or wild beasts, or other hindrance, such as the body and courage of a single man might tackle. 17. That they would never take wage or pay from any foreign prince. 18. That in command of troops of men-at-arms, they would live in the utmost possible order and discipline, and especially in their own country, where they would never suffer any harm or violence to be done. 19. That if they were bound to escort dame or damsel, they would serve her, protect her, and save her from all danger and insult, or die in the attempt, 20. That they would never offer violence to dame or damsel, though they had won her by deeds of arms, against her will and consent. 21. That being challenged to equal combat, they would not refuse, without wound, sickness, or other reasonable hindrance. 22. That having undertaken to carry out any enterprise, they would devote to it night and day, unless they were called away for the service of their king and country. 23 that if they made a vow to acquire any honour, they would not draw back without having attained either it or its equivalent. 24. That they would be faithful keepers of their word and pledged faith, and that, having become prisoners in fair warfare, they would pay to the uttermost the promised ransom, or return to prison, at the day and hour agreed upon, on pain of being proclaimed infamous and perjured. 25. That on returning to the court of their sovereign, they would render a true account of their adventures, 
even though they had sometimes been worsted, to the king and the registrar of the order, on pain of being deprived of the order of knighthood, and twenty-six, that above all things they would be faithful, courteous, and humble, and would never be wanting to their word for any harm or loss that might accrue to them. It is needless to point out that in this series of oaths, these obligations imposed upon the knights, there is a moral development very superior to that of the laic society of the period. Moral notions so lofty, so delicate, so scrupulous, and so humane, emanated clearly from the Christian clergy. Only the clergy thought thus about the duties and the relation of mankind, and their influence was employed in directing towards the accomplishment of such duties, towards the integrity of such relations, the idea and customs engendered by knighthood. It had not been instituted with so pious and deep a design, for the protection of the weak, the maintenance of justice, and the reformation of morals. It had been, at its origin and in its earliest features, a natural consequence of feudal relations and warlike life, a confirmation of the bonds established and the sentiments aroused between different masters in the same country, and comrades with the same destinies. The clergy promptly saw what might be deduced from such a fact, and they made of it a means of establishing more peacefulness in society, and in the conduct of individuals a more rigid morality. This was the general work they pursued, and if it were convenient to study the matter more closely, we might see, in the canons of councils from the eleventh to the fourteenth centuries, the Church exerting herself to develop more and more in this order of knighthood, this institution of an essentially warlike origin, the moral and civilizing character of which a glimpse has just been caught in the documents of knighthood itself. In proportion as knighthood appeared more and more in this simultaneously warlike, religious, and moral character, it more and more gained power over the imagination of men, and just as it had become closely interwoven with their creeds, it soon became the ideal of their thoughts, the source of their noblest pleasures. Poetry, like religion, took hold of it. From the eleventh century onwards, knighthood, its ceremonies, its duties, and its adventures, were the mind from which the poets drew in order to charm the people, in order to satisfy and excite at the same time that yearning of the soul, that need of events more varied and more captivating, and of emotions more exalted and more pure than real life could furnish. In the springtime of communities, poetry is not merely a pleasure and a pastime for a nation. It is a source of progress. It elevates and develops the moral nature of men at the same time that it amuses them and stirs them deeply. We have just seen what oaths were taken by the knights and administered by the priests, and now here is an ancient ballad by Eustache Deschamps, a poet of the fourteenth century, from which it will be seen that poets impressed upon knights the same duties and the same virtues, and that the influence of poetry had the same aim as that of religion. 1. Amend your lives, ye who would fain the order of the knights obtain. Devoutly watch, devoutly pray, from pride and sin, O oh, turn away. Shun all that's base, the church defend, be the widow's and the orphan's friend. Be good and leal, take not by might, be bold and guard the people's right. This is the rule for the gallant knight. 2. Be meek of heart, work day by day, tread ever tread the knightly way. Make lawful war, long-travelled air, tourney and joust for lady fair. To everlasting honour cling, that none the barbs of blame may fling. Be never slack in work or fight, be ever least in self's own sight. This is the rule for the gallant knight. 3. Love the liege lord, with might and main, his rights above all else maintain. Be open-handed, just and true, the paths of upright men pursue, 
no deaf heir to their precepts turn, the prowess of the valiant learn, that ye may do things great and bright, as did great Alexander Height. This is the rule for the gallant knight. A great deal has been said to the effect that all this is sheer poetry, a beautiful chimera without any resemblance to reality. Indeed, it has just been remarked here that the three centuries under consideration, the Middle Ages, were in point of fact one of the most brutal, most ruffianly epochs in history, one of those wherein we encounter most crimes and violence, wherein the public peace was most incessantly troubled, and wherein the greatest licentiousness in morals prevailed. Nevertheless, it cannot be denied that side by side with these gross and barbarous morals, this social disorder, there existed knightly morality and knightly poetry. We have moral records confronting ruffianly deeds, and the contrast is shocking but real. It is exactly this contrast which makes the great and fundamental characteristic of the Middle Ages. Let us turn our eyes towards other communities, towards the earliest stages, for instance, of Greek society, towards that heroic age of which Homer's poems are the faithful reflection. There is nothing there like the contrast by which we are struck in the Middle Ages. We do not see that, at the period and amongst the people of the Homeric poems, there was abroad in the air, or had penetrated into the imaginations of men, any idea more lofty or more pure than their everyday actions. The heroes of Homer seem to have no misgiving about their brutishness, their ferocity, their greed, their egotism. There is nothing in their souls superior to the deeds of their lives. In the France of the Middle Ages, on the contrary, though practically crimes and disorders, moral and social evils abound, yet men have in their souls and their imaginations loftier and purer instincts and desires. Their notions of virtue and their ideas of justice are very superior to the practice pursued around them and amongst themselves. A certain moral ideal hovers above this low and tumultuous community, and attracts the notice and obtains the regard of men in whose life it is but very faintly reflected. The Christian religion undoubtedly is, if not the only, at any rate the principal cause of this great fact, for its particular characteristic is to arouse amongst men a lofty moral ambition, by keeping constantly before their eyes a type infinitely beyond the reach of human nature, and yet profoundly sympathetic with it. To Christianity it was that the Middle Ages owed knighthood, that institution which, in the midst of anarchy and barbarism, gave a poetical and moral beauty to the period. It was feudal knighthood and Christianity together which produced the two great and glorious events of those times, the Norman conquest of England and the Crusades. End of chapter 14